you've got a Bible, if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 13, chapter 1 verse 13, um, just very much an overview today. Peter starts off in chapter 1, there is just so much. Um, he gives you the key aspects of our salvation and he then gives us the key aspects of our response And so that's what we're having a look at today. What are the key things we've got to put into action ourselves? And and the Christian life is like that. It's it's God's work in us, but um, we have to respond. It's like a tennis match, God, walking and living for God. He hits the ball and when we hit it back and he hits the ball, it's working together. Um, God doesn't do everything. but we can't do everything. We cannot live the Christian life by ourselves. It's his grace working in and through us, but at the same time we must respond. And so that's what this passage is about, and we're going to have a look at key ideas, and Peter will develop them individually later on in, the, in his next four chapters. So we'll have a look at them in more detail. So for today I'm just going to hit these key things, and so let's have a look at it. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he called you, sorry, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Let's stand and we'll pray. Yeah, I'm asking you to stand, Erin. <laughs> Erin doesn't like that. <laughs> she complained I was doing this all the time one time. But we'll pray because I want us to really get our attention, get our focus. Father, we are called to be holy people. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear, to know. And, Lord, as we hear, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us clearly, that you would encourage us, that you would turn our wills to obedience. Lord, that you would would work in our hearts. Lord, speak to us, we pray. And help us not to be hearers of your word, but doers. For we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Please be seated. So far in this letter, Peter has explained that we've been cho- we have a chosen people of God. We're his people. And we're not just his people as slaves, we've become his spiritual children. We've been born again into his family and he's spoken about how we have a a wonderful inheritance reserved in heaven for Christ, one which is guaranteed. But he's also mentioned that we live in this world as aliens and strangers. In other words, there's a sense in which we, it's not that we don't belong on the earth, we don't belong in the, in the world, which is the way the world, this world and humans run things. We're always, we've, there's always this sense that we are aliens and strangers and we, the world does not want us and does not like us and does not like the way we live and our values. And so we live as aliens and, and Peter's said that um, in this world as aliens... We suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And he's talked about that. He's talked about the wonders of our salvation, but he's sought to encourage us that, yes, we will suffer grief. Yes, we, we go through trials. The world um, can oppress and attack us, but we live in a fallen world as well. And so it is a difficult road, but it is all designed to give us an eternal glory to strengthen this faith, which is more precious than anything else that we can imagine. And so we have to live this um, life by faith, not by sight. Now, Peter, in the passage we're looking at, um, starts to have a look at another Um, key issue in the Christian life and that is that we are called to live holy lives. Now the word holy just means separate or different and it means separated and given to God and so the rest of the world, the nature of the world is to follow its own desires, to, to push God aside and to live in a way which comes from um, humans' own will and desires. And um, most of, or many of those are, are evil and, and, and perverse. But God wants us to live a life which is different. He wants us to live a life which is dedicated and honouring to him. But... We have a problem, and that is we live in a body which is the old body. And so we have this this strange difficulty here, a high calling, but we still live in this old body. Now, when Peter says about this calling we have for holy living, he says, um, and he quotes it from Leviticus 11.45, Be holy... For I am holy. It comes from Leviticus 11.45. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your, your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Now, in the New Testament, this is, tra- this is transformed into a new way. I am the Lord who, who sent my son to die on the cross for you. The word became flesh and dwelt among you. He, he shed his blood on the cross and he purchased you to be his his child 
and his spirit has come within you and lived within you and sealed you as his child and now I want you to live a holy life as his child. And so the, the challenge of that is, is that um, as Peter in verse five, um, chapter 5, verse 12, he says, the reason I'm writing is to talk about the true grace of God. And so what he's saying is the true grace of God is not to go back to Old Testament law and just follow a whole lot of commandments, nor is it to say, oh, well, God loves you so much, he forgives your sin. Now you can do anything you like. You can live sinful and, and rebellious lives, but God loves you, he forgives you, and so on. Um, he's Peter's point is no, the true grace of God, the true um, work of God in the cross is not just to forgive us. It's not just to adopt us into his family and so that we can live for eternity with him no matter how we live here. The true grace of God is to transform us out of what we were into people who are holy people in other words people who are like our father that is the true grace of God it is power to take a sinner and to transform them into a saint a saint is just a holy person that's what God's grace is it is a power to to forgive but it is then also the power to transform and um but we do that in the context of the fact that we have this problem of evil desires. You see in verse 14, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So um, the problem is, is we've got a spirit which is now joined with the spirit of God we have been born again we're God's children and we are in a relationship with God through Jesus by the Holy Spirit who lives within us we are in a relationship with God but we still live in the same old bag of bones and that's the problem because this bag of bones wants us to do a whole lot of things which um, we shouldn't be doing as God's holy people and um, so we have um, in this idea of, uh, of this old body we have our will, our physical desires what the, the Bible calls, calls it the flesh our body wants to do things and it wants to control things and the, the worldly way is to say well if I've got a desire a physical desire then I just need to obey it. And that is the, the tendency of how the world wants to live. So we've got the, de- the desires, but we've also got um, past patterns of behaviour. And so when we become a Christian, we've been living in a certain way. And, but when we become a Christian, when we've put our faith in Christ and we're adopted as God's son, we're called to be holy, but we've had these old patterns of behaviour. And not only that, we live in a world which wants to push us and conform us to its patterns. Now, that's the problem that Peter is addressing in these, this passage here. Well, we've got these um, old desires, in fact, um, it's quite strange. The, the word is actually 
the word coveting in the um, Old Testament in the Ten Commandments. The last one, number 10, is you shall not covet. That's the same word that he uses. It's the idea of, of desires. or And the idea is, is these desires should not be misdirected. And that's the problem with our desires. Some of the physical desires we have um, aren't bad in and of themselves, but our problem is, is that they are misdirected. For instance, in the commandment, it says, you shall not covet your neighbours, and it lists a whole lot of things of the neighbor. your neighbour you're not supposed to covet. You're not supposed to covet his wife. You're not to covet his, um, his workers. You're not to covet his ox, and so on. Um, so the problem of desires is not that they are actually there, but they are misdirected. And um, sinful desires are like that. They're, they're, in a sense, neutral or even good desires misdirected. And so we have to live as Christians um, in a way which does not follow these desires. So Peter addresses, well, how can we do that? How can we live as God's holy people how can we do our part now he in there is even as he explains that he he keeps going back and looking at God's part and God's grace in it but we just want to have a look at um, six things that he mentions okay as to things which we have to action they're responsibilities of ours first one is prepare your mind now, in the actual um, old, te- old um, authorised version, it translates it more literally. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay? Um, which um, is actually very similar in the, if you looked at the passage on the spiritual armour, it's the same idea as it, where um, we're to gird up the loins of our loins with the belt of truth it's a it's a very similar idea and the idea is this is in those days people wore big long robes and if they wanted to get into action get busy they had to lift up the the gown and tuck it in there and uh, in so that they were good I don't know how they did it maybe they pulled it up and in wrapped it around and so on but it's get get yourself prepared the best way we would maybe look at it is um hey roll up your sleeves and get ready for action or um get into your gear um i um, maintain a strict habit of making sure i was whenever possible i go to footy training on thursday I said, well, yes, I'm too old to play footy, but I'm going to keep going because when I stop, my body will start ageing a bit quicker. And so I really try, no matter rain, hail or shine, I try to go. Um, and there's something funny about it, but when I, when I go there, I say, oh, I don't feel like doing this. But then I get the footy boots on I put the footy and I put the little shorts on and I put my footy jumper on and suddenly I start to feel this little bit like Superman and then I get the start getting the body going and at first it doesn't want to work it's all creaks but by the time that um, the training's finished I'm running around like a two-year-old 
or like a 10-year-old. And that's the idea of what he says is prepare your mind, gird up your loins, is get prepared for action, get into the gear. But it's a, it's a mental aspect. And I'm sure you would have seen that with a lot of the Olympians. They have a lot. They have psychologists saying, "Okay, how can you prepare your mind for action?" And so the idea is: is we've got to understand as Christians, we've got to accept the challenge that we are going to have to fight against the desires of the flesh, the sinful nature, the old man. Paul uses a lot of different terms. Peter just goes, prepare your mind for action. Don't conform to these old patterns. Don't follow these evil desires. You have got to accept the challenge that you are in a fight and that you have got to work in your mind to overcome the idea and things that your body and the world would seek to press in on you. And so um, the Christian life is, is very much a rational life. It begins and focuses in on the mind. A lot of people imagine that the Christian life is sort of an irrational leap into, into falsehood. It's, it's sort of um, wishful thinking. But what the Christian life is, is it's, it's a life which is born from a mind which is focused in on the truth. It says, I am going to act based on the truth and I'm going to prepare my mind so that I will live according to the truth and not according to these desires that keep pushing up from my own body and from the world. I am not going to be conformed to those. I am going to act and behave out of a mind which is focused in on the truth. And so, of course, that means that it's part of that is being in relationship to God. The Spirit is given to us so that we have the Spirit... um, speaking to our, our spirit, which informs our mind, which then is to control our actions. And so for the world, it looks like we're rational because they don't believe the same truths. They think it's now or never. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But that's the lie. But Christians behave differently because we know God's truth and we prepare our mind for action. Now, the second thing that Peter mentions, and it's very, very much connected with this, and I sort of thought of keeping it as one point, but I thought I'd separate them out, because the first one is prepare your mind for action, and this one is now you have to act. It's very strange that the, uh, when, Paul, when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, he says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Yeah, oh, I thought it was the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit working in us. Yeah, and the fruit of that Spirit is that I control myself. Yeah, how does it work? Well, we work in partnership. Is The Spirit connects with our Spirit and informs our Spirit and our Spirit calls out, say, you're the Spirit of Christ, my Heavenly Father. Um, I'm in relationship with you. I'm your child. And so that Spirit informs our spirit. And then that informs our mind to say, okay, I am going to act like this. And so I will control my body actions based on what is coming from God through my spirit to my mind. And that's going to 
work out in action. So I've got a, um, a thing there in, in um, it's not a fancy picture, but it's just spirit goes to mind to behaviour. That's what self-control is. I call it, I use the term phrase or the phrase or term from the top down. The Christian life we live from the spirit through the mind into behaviour. Whereas the worldly way is the reverse. It's I, my body wants to do this, I've got this desires. It says eat, it, may, it says do this, do that, do that. It's got all these sexual urges, it's got all these um, emotional passions of anger and desire and so on. They're coming up from the body and from my receptacles of my past experience and they will then seek to control the body. So it's not body mind behavior it's spirit mind behavior so um, Christians are people who are self-controlled yes we can do things yes we continue to get these ideas but we refuse to obey every one of them and so that's the, the second thing that Peter talks we've got to be prepared for action we need to we need to understand that the Christian life is a self-controlled life. We have to exercise our will and control our behaviour and not follow every women fancy. Now, the third thing that Peter mentions is that we need to set your hope. Um, Peter talks about, he says, set your hope on the wonders of the salvation which is going to be re- revealed when Christ comes back. Now, um, one of the things that um, I had to learn when I was first learning driving was, um, I'm sure you've all, anyone who's driven that, you, you, when you first start driving, your tendency is to look really close and you, you tend to look very close. And as a result, what happens is as you go, as you drive, it tends to mean you wobble around. It's also what happens when a person gets drunk and tries to drive. They, they lose the ability to look forward and they start looking there and they're, they're just going there and they wander down the road like that and often off into the bush. And um, one of the things um, I find is when I'm driving fairly fast... And so you're on a windy track, windy roads. So I sometimes give that when I've gone up to Northern and you go there some quite windy roads. And sometimes you go, oh, this is getting a bit, this is getting a bit hairy. And so the natural inclination is to go, oh, and you start looking very, very close in front of you. And suddenly you go, I realise, oh, I'm starting to go like this. I'm getting. I'm going to the left. I'm going too too much to the right. And I go. One of the things I do is, oh, Russ, when you do this to smooth out your thing, you look further. You look long. You look around the bend, and then you just tend to go around it. Now, life is like that in the Christian life. Is we have to have a long view 
of life. In fact, we have to have an eternal view. And so we can see this in every New Testament letter and so on. When they're talking about the Christian life, they say, set your, set your hope on the salvation which is to be brought to you when Jesus returns. And so it's not set your mind on the next week or set your mind on the, th- on the next month. He's saying you've got to have a long-term view. You've got to look to the salvation and glory that shall be revealed to you when Christ returns. Now, um, I was hearing uh, some discussion about some people in the Olympics and um, uh, talking about how many years this person has been preparing for the Olympics so that they could then perform and then get their gold medal. And they said, well, um, one of the guys says, well, it was at least eight years. He said, no, 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 it was at least 12. And they were arguing with, um, on 6PR talkback, yeah, on the sports time at 6 o'clock. And... Um, on my way to footy training. And so they're going, okay, yep, how many years? And so they're arguing about whether it was 12 or, or 8 years of this person having prepared that. And their point was, was the reason this person was able to perform at this, in this gold medal and to do so well was because they'd had all these years of preparation. And that's how life is, is we have to understand that we've got to have this long term view the Christian life will have its ups and its downs in experience there'll be difficult times there'll be easy times and the, the clue to overcoming the lusts of the flesh and the desires which would cause us to make stupid decisions which would cause all kinds of disasters and, 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 um, and problems in our life is to look at the long term. I'm after the glory that shall be revealed to me when Jesus returns. And when we make our decisions in the light of that, it makes a lot more uh, sense and it causes us to make the right decision. For instance, um, it's a bit crude and I won't use the crude way it's said, but you see, um, for instance, when people get into um, um, sexual sin, one of the, um, one of the things that uh, people say is, uh, I've often heard women say, it, oh, he thinks with his genitals you know it's he all he can think all he all this guy she's saying who yes obviously the woman was involved too and blames the man but um all he was thinking of was his own sexual desires there if he was thinking long term he never would have done it but he was just focused on the, the very short-term actions of now. And so the, the challenge of the Christian life is long-term thinking. Set your hope. And it's a constant thing of with his preparing your mind is, I must think in the long term. I always look when it's getting difficult and the harder it is and the more difficult the temptation the further I need to look. What are the consequences of this action? Not just in this life, but when Christ returns. And I'm going to have to give an account to him.
Oh, just on that, one of the um, things which it came out, I don't know, maybe it's in the 90s, a psychologist came out with a thing called the EQ, which is Emotional Quotient. And um, he said, um, he, he came out with this great idea, EQ is far more important than IQ. IQ is, is a measure of how smart you are. EQ is a measurement of your emotional intelligence and what it is is how much can you put off long, long-term gain for short-term pain. You know, it's, can I go, well, I'm not going to do this now because in the, it'll be bad for me in the long term. And they have little tests where they'll give you something. You can have this now or if you wait, then we'll give you a whole lot more. And they just test you with every person. And people who have got a low IEQ fail in life. And they fail in eternity. Christians are to be people with high EQs. We put off short-term pleasure for the long-term gain of glory and honour when Jesus returns. From pleasing God rather than satisfy desires the fourth one and um, often we don't want to do that is to fear God in verse 17 Paul Peter writes since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially live your lives as strangers here in reverend fear now the word reverend is not in the original we do that in fact a lot of people go okay in reverence reverent awe um, can I tell you what the word, um, that word fear means? It means fear. doesn't mean reverence. It means fear. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behaviour and perverse speech. And fear of the Lord is, what is probably the main theme or the secondary theme of the book of Proverbs. Now, the idea with fear is is the fear of God is not contrary to love for God. People imagine, well, how can I have fear for God? Um, I've got to love God, and love's a higher motive. Well, as I've thought about it, it sounds a bit funny. It says, um, to fear God means we love his justice, and we don't want to be on the wrong side of it. In other words, if we love God, we will understand that our God, the God we got love is a God of justice. He is not mocked. We reap what we sow. If we sow to these sinful desires, we will reap eternal consequences. Now, we know... We know um, that often people go, well, when I'm Christian, I'm forgiven and so on. But there are eternal consequences and glory to the decisions we make and there are life consequences when we choose to follow the sinful passions of our body and the desires and patterns of this world. There are catastrophes in this life and loss of glory in the next. And that's what the fear of God is, is to know that if I, as God's child, chooses to rebel against him and disobey him, he will discipline me. Now, God is 
And it's, it's a difficult thing we face sometimes. Often we think, well, how come this world seems to get away with things and this person can live like just horrific life and so sinful and it seems like they get away with it, but as soon as I do something, it all falls apart. Well, that's because God loves us. And so if we love him, we will fear him and we'll make sure that we stay on, the, on his good side and not put ourselves up for his discipline. The fear of the God is the beginning of wisdom, um, as Proverbs says. The fifth one, I've just got two more to do, is uh, we need to have faith in God's loving kindness. In um, these verses, it's just, just phenomenal. It says, for you know, that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life emptied, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So the idea here that Peter says is one of the keys things that we have to do as Christians to to fight the desires of the flesh and the, the desire of the world to conform us to its pattern is we must keep before us God's love for us. We must maintain our faith in him. Now that's why we need to be at church every week it's why we need to be in his word every day and feed ourselves we have to keep coming back to the cross and say I was redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus God has valued me enough he has desired me enough that he would shed his own blood now um, as I think about that the the wonder of it is this is that God who exists in three persons decided that the second the son was to become a man and as a man Jesus says what can I do what must I do or what will I do even to redeem this person back so that they would be in relationship to me now, what he did was he shed his blood on the cross. Now, as, a, as God, we could imagine um, in his, as a spirit creating infinite worlds. But as a man, he has one life to give. And he sheds his blood on the cross. He could not have done more as a single man than what he did to offer himself on the cross. It's, it's, um, it's not an exaggeration what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus in the, in the garden was saying, Lord, if it's possible, if it's any other way. And we're told he was, he was so overcome with, with fear and trepidation that he sweated drops of blood. 
but he pressed through and he went through willingly because he loves us and wanted to redeem us for himself. And when we, when we don't act according to a loving response of a child, we spurn his blood. We, um, Hebrews talks about we trample underfoot the blood of that covenant which he shed for us. And so we have this idea that we keep before us the precious blood of Jesus by which he redeemed us. And the final thing is, as Christians, we... Um, we love our spiritual family. Um, we don't get to choose our Christian family. It's like the same as our physical family. It comes out, doesn't matter. Brother, sister, born in our family and it's our job to live with them. Now, it's the same with our spiritual family. When we become Christians, we, we are to live in community, in a church. And fear not is supposed to be one of the greatest commands. The, probably the next most common command to Christians is love one another. Peter says in this passage, love each other deeply. Now, the idea here, what Peter is saying, is, is that the Christian life is um, we have to prepare our minds. We have to fight against the world and the flesh. We've got all these things, but we do it in community. We must love, and it's as we love others, it binds ourselves to a community, and that preserves us against the the, the desires and the tendency to conform to the patterns of the flesh. We bind ourselves together in unity, in love. And that is a tremendously important um, part. You see what he says, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Now he assumes that we've got sincere love. He goes, assuming you've got sincere love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, love each other deeply from the heart. And he goes, why? Because you've been born again. In other words, the idea is you've all been born, you're in the same family. And so the sixth one is we love each other. We we bind ourselves deeply deeply into our commitment with the body of Christ. Now, one of the tragedies of, of modern society is we've broken down the structure of the week and, and we've lost that pattern, is it's, it's become um, an optional extra for Christians to, be bind, to bind themselves into the community of the believers. And, uh, but it is such an essential that we would be bound deeply together in community. So, conclusion. What does he want us to do? No holiness is God's plan. I want to talk about it later, but it, yeah, holiness is not a boring, 
uh, non-enjoyable life. It brings joy, meaningness, meaning and effectiveness in our life. We'll talk a lot about that as we go on and develop these ideas. Know that God in three persons is on your side. God is on your side to help you to overcome the desires of the flesh and the the efforts of the world to conform you to its patterns of behaviour. God is on your side. But you've got to do your part. You've got to see, you've got to actually act in response to God's work. You've got to prepare your mind, be self-controlled, set your hope on the coming on in Jesus who's coming again. You've got to fear God, your judge. Have faith in God's loving kindness for you and love your spiritual family deeply. Let's pray. Let's all stand and we'll pray. Father, we want to live as your holy people. This is our destiny and our calling. We were made for this. It's what thrills our heart. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to put these six actions into our lives, that we would prepare our minds, that Lord, we would learn to be self-controlled. Lord, that we would continually reset our hope on Jesus and his coming, that we would live as if he might come back today. Lord, and that we would fear our God, our precious Father's discipline, and so we would not go into evil. And Lord, that we would have constant faith that you love us so much that you shed your precious blood on that cross for us. Help us to know without a doubt your love. And Lord, help us to live together in close community. Help us not to separate ourselves out, but to press in to building deep relationships and deep commitments of love with one another. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.